you would open your Bibles, if you have them with you, and uh, turn them to the second chapter of 1 Corinthians. Let me remind you of the context of this particular message. We are preparing for a 10-year journey of spiritual maturity. And the first year of that journey is given to breaking the ordinary cycle of spirituality. Because unless you break that cycle, your religion is just that, a religion, not a relationship. It's a formula that sometimes works, but very seldom. And so therefore, we've got to break ordinary patterns, that way, those ways in which we've get, gotten used to God. And in the month of October, we've concentrated on stretching the mind. If we're going to go on this great marathon, let, let, me, let me switch metaphors here. Um, if we're going to go on this great metaphor, it requires a lot of stretching so that we don't, pull, we don't get out there and pull something. And so that's what we're doing in the month of October. We are trying to think differently, stretch our minds. Today I want to talk about the mind of Christ. And it may seem odd to sing a song about the wilderness when you're going to talk about the mind of Christ. Because isn't the mind of Christ this high and exalted thing that knows all? and has all of the answers. Why then a song about the wilderness? Why then a song about groaning and growing? Well, if you'll work with me this morning, and it's going to take some intellectual work, if you'll work with me this morning, I think I'll be able to explain the difference between the mind of the Father and the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is available to us, but we may not want to use it. Because in order to use it, we have to go through what Christ went through. Now, read with me, if you would, please. Uh, I'm going to start with verse 9 instead of verse, um, whatever verse I had in there. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Now, that's how we're starting there are Greek words that, that use the mind and the heart inter interchangeably. And I want you to get the idea that when we start to talk about the mind of Christ, we, not, we don't start with the brain, we start with the heart. We start with the sensing of things, the discerning of things in our heart. For those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man, which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. Now there's that word again. Yet he himself is appraised, there it is again, by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him but we have the mind of Christ. 
Every person who has received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, if you've never done that, here's how to do it when the Spirit brings you to it. You simply need to say, God, I have lived separately from you. I am a sinful person. I have willingly lived separately from you, and I don't want to do it any longer. Therefore, because I know that I owe you everything in my life in the first place, and there's nothing I can do to make up for what I've done. Only you can do that. And I know that that's why Jesus died on the cross. I accept what he did for me. I accept him as the payment of my sins. And I accept the forgiveness there. Now come into my heart and live and make of my life whatever you want. If you pray that and you mean it, then Jesus is living in your heart. The Bible says that. If Jesus is living in your heart, the Bible says you have the mind of Christ. Now, it is a capacity right now, not a reality probably, because we have not used it. We have not grown into it. But that's what I want to talk about this morning. How does a Christian approach the world searching all things? In Scripture, in verse 10, it says, The Spirit of God searches all things. And then in verse 15, it says, He who is spiritual appraises all things. How does a Christian approach the world with the mind of Christ? H. Richard Niebuhr wrote a book called Christ and Culture one time in which he gave five typologies of the approaches Christians usually use toward the world, of appraising the world. The first one was Christ against culture. That is, these Christians go out and say, everything in the world is bad. It's all going down the tubes. Whatever they do, we're going to do the opposite, and therefore that's what God wants. They bring up scriptures like, whoever is friends with the world loveth not God. See? Now, we've got to be very careful here, because there's a difference between the world and worldliness. Worldliness is a way of thinking that infects us, but the world was made by God. So there's Christ against culture. There's that type of church. There's also the type of church that says it's Christ of culture. That's on the other end of the spectrum. Which says you can't really tell the difference. You know, what's good for the world is good for Christ, and Christ is in there somehow, and it's kind of pantheistic. It's kind of, well, God's everywhere, and I'll just be nice, and and, uh, if I'm good enough, I'll get to heaven. One of those things, see. Then there is Christ above culture. Those are the people who say, I'll live in the world, but I won't like it. And I will treat it as insignificant until I can go to heaven where I belong. The world is not an important place, in other words, because my view is much higher than the world. Don't have anything against it, just don't have any use for it. Then there's Christ and culture and paradox. This is a little bit more complicated, and, and my summary probably won't be quite so accurate. But this says that Christianity and the world are in constant tension and stress. And that brings uh, to light the difference between the two. And so therefore, um, um, you, you go out there and the more tense you get, the more you realize how much you need God and how different God is. Anybody want to live like that? <laughs> we are. A lot of us are living like that, aren't we? Tremendously stressed. And then there is Christ transforming the world. And this view, in a nutshell, uh, not doing it justice, sees the world as 
fodder for the building of the kingdom of God. As, as, a, uh, as a, a, a place that we can mold maybe the city of God in this world if we work hard enough and transform it into what God wanted it to be. Well, those are five good typologies and you can probably find yourself in two or three of them. But let me go back over this scripture and let me say to you, I think he missed one very significant typology. Now, the Niebuhr boys, Reinhold and Richard, were brilliant guys and I would not for a moment place myself on the same intellectual plane as they are. But I do believe that a Christian can approach the world, and when a Christian approaches the world with the mind of Christ, there is a certain aspect that is missed in these typologies. Let me go to the Scripture, and let me show you what I'm talking about. Again, in verse 10, or let's start out with verse 15. It says, He who is spiritual appraises all things. The the word appraises is anacrino, and it means to search intensely. Ana in a, in a, in a, uh, combined with another word means intensity. And crino means to judge, to discern, to search. Okay? So that when a Christian comes to the world, he is searching for something. That's his approach. He is looking for something. As a matter of fact, the, world, the, the, the word uh, in verse 10 for the Spirit searches all things, is eryunao, and it means to search, but it comes from a base word that means to call or to speak forth. And so there is a certain calling while you're searching through the world. Calling for what belongs to you. Calling for what will respond. Now, when did you see in the Bible somebody go someplace calling and searching for what would respond? In the Garden of Eden. Isn't that right? Isn't that what God did in the cool of the day? Walked through the garden and said, Adam. He was calling. He was seeking Adam. He was calling for what was his to see if it would respond. I believe Christ searches culture. I believe that there is something that is not balanced, that he wants, there is something to be done, and Christians need, if they're going to have the mind of Christ, to look in the world for that which is of God. And to make an invitation with our lives so that that which is of God can respond to God. We have a Thursday morning men's Bible study, and Ralph Fulton made a comment the other day. He kind of sits there quietly most of the time until he got a real dry sense of humor. And uh, we were talking about, I forget what the subject was, and, and he spoke up and, and he said, you know, I'm a, I'm a recovering accountant. And <laughs> recovering accountant. And he said, yeah, I'm one of those guys that grew up with a bookkeeping background, and I need for things to balance. I mean, if there's 15 cents over here, I want to know where it is over here. And, I, you know, he runs a business and he says, I go in, I can punch numbers all over a computer and a computer spits out all this wonderful information and all this accurate stuff. 
But it doesn't tell me where it came from. It doesn't let me know whether or not things are balanced. Well, that's the attitude that I think we need to have because God gives us a picture of the world over here and we need to see where it balances over here. We need to see if there's 15 cents over here, where the 15 cents is over here. We need to look for it. Therefore, if you will have the mind of Christ, it is not the one that has all of the answers. It is the one that has all of the questions. You have seen an image, and now it is up to you to find it in the world. Secondly, the mind of Christ is one that knows if anyone is going to change, it's me. That's why people don't really like the mind of Christ. If you will turn to the second chapter of Philippians, let me show you where another place in the Bible that the mind of Christ is used. That phrase is used. Starting with verse 4, Paul writes, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Having this attitude, now the Greek word here is thinking, having this thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, this is the way he thought. This is the mind of Christ. Who, although he existed in the form of God, now remember that word form, he's in one form here, right? Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. So he has just changed forms. Hasn't changed personalities, hasn't changed essences, but he has changed forms. And it says, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, also, God highly exalted him. There is this very important dynamic in having the mind of Christ that says, you must give truth in the way that truth can be accepted. You must not concentrate only on what you have to say. You must concentrate on how they can hear. You don't change the message, but you change the form. And if somebody's got to change, it's you. You're the one. Now let me ask you this. If God himself would change forms in order to match enough his audience, is it beneath us to change forms in order to match ours? I heard a story once about a pastor that worked in the hills of West Virginia. And he went down to the coal mines on break to meet a parishioner. And they had just come out from the mines. And this parishioner had a friend with him. And he saw his pastor come in and he waved to him and he waved him on over. And he said, Pastor, I want you to meet my friend 
Frank Jones. And the pastor stuck out his hand. He said, hi, Frank. And the, and the Frank just kind of shrunk back. And he said, oh, I, I couldn't shake your hand. I'm all dirty. The pastor said, no problem. Reached his hand down in the grime, got it completely black, and stuck it out again. Hi, Frank. That's a perfect analogy of God. Did not change substance, did not change intention, but changed form to match so that he was accessible to one who would shrink back. I remember as a, as a kid, there was an assistant pastor at our church who was a huge, hulky football player, great athlete. I can remember looking at him. We had a large church, and I can remember looking at him in the pulpit. The guy was absolutely a hunk. And I can remember going with my friend. Now, this is before both of us are saved. We have horrible language. We're out in the back of the football stadium practicing the discus throw. And Pastor Tom starts to wonder up. Now, he doesn't know who I am. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't know who I am. But I can see on his mind, because this is the kind of guy he was, I'm going to go hang around with these guys and establish a relationship with these guys and see maybe where the Lord is eventually. You know, that was just his heart. So I see this guy coming when he's about five steps from us. I have absolutely no time to tell my friend, Mike Armstrong, who this guy is. Mike winds up his throw, and it goes awry. And this string of expletives comes out his mouth. You would never. I am very hampered in telling you this story. If I could tell you how it happened, you would be shocked. I am turning all shades of red, trying to figure out how I can tell him who this guy is. I am unusually quiet because usually my own words would follow. We had kind of a litany going, you know. He'd say a cuss word, I'd say a cuss word. He'd say a cuss word, I'd say a cuss word. You know how guys do, see? Kind of a litany going. I was silent on my end. So he continued more. Well, this assistant pastor, didn't, he just smiled. He said, let me tell you probably what you're doing wrong there. He, he really knew what he was talking about. So he, so he instructed him, and he, the army tried again. He didn't get it far enough for his taste, so he started cussing again. Tom says, no, 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 try this. And so he worked with us for probably 45 minutes. The whole time, army was cussing. And the whole time... Every time Tom turned away, I was looking at him going. And he was going. See? Well, finally, we all had to go. Tom had to go. He said, man, maybe I'll catch you guys here sometime again. You, you come down, yeah, pretty, pretty often. We'll say, I'll, be, I'll be back. I want to just kind of help you and, and get to know you better. Great. Walks off. Army says, great guy. Who was that guy? I said, whoa, that was the assistant pastor of my church. Army was horrified. I mean, absolutely horrified. He said, why didn't you tell me? I said, what do you think all this stuff was about? <laughs> Six months later, he gave his life to the Lord long before I did. And I know that at 
at least part of the motivation was the absolute embarrassment he must have felt. (laughs) The reproof he must have felt in his spirit. The looking at his own sin in the face and not being able to fool himself about it anymore. But you know what? The major portion of that conversion must have been was the memory of someone who would just stay with him no matter what. Just to be close to him. To be in his form. That must have helped. That is the character of God. That is the mind of Christ. I went to a went to a church uh, uh, gathering the other day. Ministers getting together to figure out how we could... There was like a hundred... Well, there's ministers and lay people too. There was like 130 of us uh, getting together, figuring out how we could have a continual ministry in the city together. Now, it's always funny when you first get together because everybody sizes everybody up. This should be the most natural thing in the whole world. Christians getting together, figuring out how they can work in unity. Not in uniformity, in unity. Should be the most natural thing in the whole world. But it, for some reason, is more difficult than anything you can imagine. I don't know why that is. I heard a joke the other day. Let me tell you a joke. You got time for a joke? <laughs> Bill Gable told me this one. I like this. Uh, guys out in the desert, in the Middle East, you know, a couple of guys from Florida out there, just in the Middle East, and they find this lamp. You know, it's an old genie joke, you know. They rub the lamp, and the genie comes out. Boy, thanks. I've been in there for 2,000 years. Tell me a wish. Anything you want, it's yours. You tell me. So these guys are Christian guys. They get, they get out this map of the Middle East and said, this is great. Let me, let me update you on what the map of the Middle East looks like right now. This is Syria. This is Iraq. This is Iran. This is Jordan and so on and so forth. And this is Israel and so on and so forth. Make peace. And Jenny looks at him and says, you've got to be crazy. He said, that is too hard. I can't do that. These people have been fighting for thousands of years. They'll probably be fighting for thousands more. I can't do that. Give me another wish. So they look at him and said, Okay. There's a team called the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. <laughs> We'd like for them to win the Super Bowl someday. Jeannie looks at him and says, Let me see that map again. <laughs> not be all that hard for Christians to get together. But for some reason it's easier to make peace in the Middle East. The point is that I heard a guy who was wonderful. He was a sociologist who was a professor at Northern Baptist Seminary in Chicago and he'd been all over the nation and seen all kinds of churches and how they were changing forms to meet the needs of the people. Now not to tickle the ears of man. Not to cater to the individual interest of the consumer Christian. But trying to remove the forms that got in the way. He said, there's a church that I know who has five services. I think we have five services. He said, every one of these services has a little different tilt. I mean, the, the message is basically the same in all of them. But one is basically the service for people who come out of a formal background. And they like... They, the minister wears a robe and they have a liturgical procession and they have, they have uh, organ music and, and those are for the people who, who are most ready in that kind of a, of a setting to be able to see God without distraction, without interference. And one is a children's 
uh, service. And, and you have this kind of thing here, you know, the, the cute thing. And, the, and he said, he said they, you like that? <laughs> they, I've been practicing that for a long time. The girls won't let me. I keep asking them if I can dance. No, you're a boy. I can't, I can't break through. But, um, but the, the children's choir is the choir of the week. I mean, every week the children's choir performs. The children hand out the... The children and parents together hand out the uh, uh, bulletins, and, and it's basically geared toward kids. And they have a contemporary service, and they have a charismatic service, and they have a, a service for recovery groups, people in recovery groups with a little different tilt, more toward sen- t- sensitive toward hurt and so on and so forth. You know, I was thinking, that is neat. We haven't got the, we haven't got the horsepower to pull that off here, but that is neat. There was a student of mine, uh, a seminary student here last night, and he speaks fluent Spanish and his wife speaks fluent Japanese and I was thinking to myself wouldn't it be neat to have Spanish ministry and a Japanese ministry well the whole thing is that if we're going to have the mind of Christ we have to be ready to change the form not the essence the Bible is very clear that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever he will always be the answer there will always be absolutes there will always be certainty however the form needs to be broken. And there aren't very many people who want to have the mind of Christ because there aren't very many people who are willing to change for the sake of who they want to communicate with. Let me tell you one more reason why we have the mind of Christ, but we don't want to use it very badly. And that is, back in... Uh, if we can go back to uh, um, 1 Corinthians 2... Again, in verse 10, the Spirit searches, I just explained that to you, all things. Now I want, I want to concentrate on that all things. It's also in verse 15. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. It's also in the next chapter, starting with verse 21. For all things belong to you. Uh, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. And then he says it again. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. There is this tremendous inclusion in the mind of Christ that makes it horribly difficult to ever exclude anyone up front. Now, let me just remind you of the life of Christ. We think of Christ as being God, as having it all figured out. And therefore, he comes along in a perfect plan, and he sets this in motion, and he sets that in motion, and he really knows what he's doing, and therefore, he has this well-thought-out puzzle to put together, and he proceeds to do it. That does not mirror the image of the Christ that I see in the Gospels. Again, let me teach you the difference between the mind of the Father and the mind of the Son. I am of Reformed theology. I believe that an honest reading of Scripture cannot get rid of words like predestination and election. I believe that the Spirit works in accordance with the plan of the Father. But here's the terribly, initially, confusing thing to me. Jesus does not seem to be terribly aware of the details of that plan as he walks through his life. 
He ministers to whomever. He involves whomever. He includes everybody. His life was not organized. It was chaos. I mean, just read a, a couple of chapters just for fun sometime. Read, read Mark 4 and 5. He went from preaching all day, one day. He was so tired, he climbed into a boat, said, take me across. He wasn't, they weren't out of the dock till he was so asleep and a storm came up. The storm was so terrible that it almost broke the boat in half. He was so tired, he never woke up. Till some weenie disciples said, Oh, Jesus, don't you care about us? Well, he wakes up and he's trying to get oriented. He says, Okay, be still and the thing calms down again. They land on the other side. He hasn't had his sleep. The first thing he sees is some naked loony head coming up, chains going like this. You know, somebody possessed the demons and they bow down and the demons start talking to him. Jesus is still awful tired. He says, okay, okay. Demons go into pigs. The pigs run in the thing. Then the farmers come after him. I can't believe you sent my pigs in that thing. Get out of here. So he gets kicked out of the territory. Goes across the thing again. Meets a guy whose daughter's dying. Come here, take a, make a house call. He's so tired by this time. He's going across here. There's somebody who just reaches up and touches in the road. He is so tired and needs his power for motivation. I mean, this is my, this is how I read it. He, he turns around and says, Oh man, who took that power from me? I really needed that. Well, is this woman who just needed And she got healed and said, Oh great. Well, he did a social healing. He pronounced her well as well as a physical healing. But I want you to see that in no case did Jesus ever say, Ah, not so fast. Not you. Not you. There is a tremendous difference between the confined, inclusive view of Jesus in this world that can't find it in his heart to automatically reject those who seek him, to automatically reject those who come across his path. His path. I read a story this week that just sticks in my mind. I just can't get rid of it. Um, two years ago in the Chicago Tribune, 1989, toward the end of the year, the Tribune published pictures of the decade. You know at the end of every decade people do that. Uh, they, they go through the highlights. And one of the pictures of the decade was the picture of a fireman carrying out the bodies of a family who had been burned in a terrible apartment fire. And putting it together, the firemen suspected that they could tell basically how the story went. They said that from the evidence they had, there was a mother and five children. From the evidence they had, the mother and five children were gathered together in the kitchen. And the mother had enough time to save herself and maybe two or three of those five children. But she couldn't choose. And rather than choose, they all stayed together and they all died. 
Now you say, that's not good arithmetic. I mean, three of them could have lived. But how do you choose? How do you choose? Was it Christ who chose on the cross when he prayed for the people directly below him, mocking him, who had every evidence that they would never come to God? When he prayed, probably in vain, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Couldn't choose, could he? We can't either, can we? If we have the mind of Christ, the love of God is for everybody. Let him do the choosing, not us. If we have the mind of Christ, we are impartial. And we can't tell who's called and who's not with any degree of certainty. And so therefore, we are called to give our love out to those who we might prejudge as excluded because the mind of Christ is inclusive. Now, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of wasted time, and that's a lot of effort maybe done in the world mind in vain. But that's the mind of Christ. Can you do that? Will you do that? Pray with me. Lord, it's easy to pray for all the answers. It's easy to pray for the perspective that can tell the black and the white of things. But it is so difficult to live as you lived. As a matter of fact, it is so difficult. We can't possibly do it without you. So therefore, again, we recognize our need. And we invite you to come into our lives, reveal things as you will, as the Bible says. But help us, Lord God, to continually search in this world for the things that are yours. To continually change in that search so that what may be yours can hear your voice and see your image in us. And to continually include others that we may not want to include, that takes a lot of work to include, that if we include them, we cannot save ourselves. Help us to include them. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being adequate for everyone's need. Let us follow in your steps. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.